if we got to pass out gift cards to get people to come to church, we're doing something wrong. <laughs> Good to see everybody today on this uh, April Fool's Day that nature has pulled on us. <laughs> Man, just when you thought it was spring, they're like, nope, just kidding. Things like that happens every year, though, doesn't it? Things start blooming, the sun's coming out, it's getting warm, and everybody's excited. Spring is here, and then, nope, we got one more blast of cold left with it. That's welcome to Texas. Well, today is the third week in our series going through the book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles, turn there, chapter 1. <clears throat> so far, we've only looked at three verses, the first three verses of chapter 1, and I know that doesn't seem like much, and we're going to cover a lot more ground this morning, but what the writer said in those three verses is a lot. He has established that Jesus is God's final and decisive word to mankind, that he was the primary agent of creation itself, that he is the ultimate display of God's glory, that nothing can be known about God apart from him. And because Jesus' death and resurrection was the climatic event that all of history was leading up to, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high because he finished what he came to do. There is nothing that he will do in the future that will be greater than what he has already done. The author of Hebrews has done a pretty good job of establishing the fact so far that Jesus is it. He is ultimate. There is nothing greater, nothing more. That's why the Bible says he's not just a king, he is the king of all kings. He's not just a Lord, he is the Lord of all lords. When John received his great revelation, Jesus announced who he was by saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, meaning I am the beginning and I am the end, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. This is why you've heard me say several times that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It equals everything. And so why would we ever look to anything else? Seems kind of foolish when you just begin to see just how ultimate and awesome Jesus is. But the truth is we do look to other things. And so we need this constant reminder of who he is and what he's done. So the writer of Hebrew begins this letter by making some pretty bold claims about Jesus. And then he's going to spend the rest of it backing those claims up. And since he's writing to Hebrew people, he's going to do that by comparing Jesus to some of the most iconic figures that Hebrew people have traditionally looked to as being these great and ultimate things. And the first thing he's going to do that with is angels beginning in verse 4. So let's all stand this morning in honor of God's word and we're going to read and he actually begins to make his point with the last sentence of verse 3. So we're going to start there and read through 9. It says, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. 
And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful for the things that are contained in your word here that we are going to look at. And God, I pray that you give us eyes to see, give us, give us ears to hear. Lord, we're just singing about your great and awesome name. Your word says there is no name under heaven by which men may be saved. When the name of Jesus is spoken, Lord, demons shriek and cower. Lord, I pray that this morning we would see the greatness and the power of who you are. Lord, some for the very first time. Some of us just need to be reminded again to see it fresh and anew. Lord, let your will be done this morning. We submit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So why would the writer of Hebrews feel the need to compare Jesus to angels, to prove his superiority over angels? Well, To the Hebrew people, angels were a pretty big deal. Angels have always played a a huge role in their story. And looking back through the Old Testament, we see that whenever God wanted to say something, that he usually used angels as his messengers to say it. This is one of the many ways that verse 1 refers to, that the way that God spoke back then. And so he's saying that God speaking through Jesus today is far greater than the way he spoke through angels back then. But angels have always been a part of the history of the Hebrew people, Uh, not just when God wanted to say something, but also whenever he wanted to do something great, he would often send angels to do that. And so because they were such a recurring character in the story of the Hebrew people, you can understand why they would think so highly of them. But the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is far greater than angels, and he gives two reasons for that in what we just read. He said, first of all, that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become, or because of that, he has become much better than angels. He's saying Jesus is great because he sits at the right hand of God. No angel anywhere has ever had that position. He makes that point further down in verse 13 when he says, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Well, the answer is he hasn't said that to any angel, just to Jesus. Now, before we continue on, I want to say something about this whole right hand of God thing. You know, there are some people who just don't believe that Jesus and God are one and the same. They believe that they are two separate beings and that Jesus was simply God's son and nothing more than that. They don't believe him to be equal with God and will often use Hebrews 1.3 to prove their point, saying that because it says he sits at God's right hand, then that means they are two separate uh, beings there. But there's something in that that they fail to realize. You see, things like right, left, up, down, sit, stand, and time are terms 
that are used in and limited to a finite physical world, the world that you and I live in. God is not a finite and physical being. He is infinite and a spiritual being. That means he is not limited to and defined by space and time. He exists outside of space and of time. Now, I know that kind of stretches our brain to try to make sense of that, but don't spend too much time trying to because you're not going to be able to. That is an infinite truth, and we are finite beings, and so we, we just cannot wrap our puny brains around that. But the limitations that we operate in this world They don't exist with God. He doesn't exist with terms like right and left, up, down, sit, stand. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. And so for the writer to describe Jesus as sitting at the right hand of God is more of a description of Jesus' character and nature than it is a description of his physical location. He is describing who Jesus is, not so much where Jesus is, at least in the way that we understand what where means. In the Old Testament, a man's right hand was a symbol of power and authority. And so when a father would pass on the the blessing and the, the birthright to the firstborn son, he would always take his right hand, place it on the son's head as a sign that he was transferring the family authority to that son. And after he did that, the son would now be the one who carried the authority in the family. David mentions the right hand of God 40 times just in the book of Psalms and says several times that your right hand upholds me. I take refuge in your right hand. Was David talking about a literal place that he would go to hide? No, not at all. In Psalm 1611, he says, in your right hand are pleasures forever. Now, does that mean that there's not any pleasures in God's left hand? Of course not. David is just saying that there are pleasures forever in the power and authority of God. And so for Hebrews to say that Jesus sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, it's not limiting Jesus to a physical, literal place. By saying he sat down, we talked about the significance of that of that last week, meaning that he finished what he came to do. It's just another description of what Jesus meant when he said from the cross, it is finished. And so if there's this big project you've been working on and you've been spending all this time to do it, and it's one of your greatest achievements and you've been putting all, forth all this effort and finally you look at it and you're done, what do you do? You sit down. And that's what Jesus did because he finished what he came to do. Then to say that he does that at the right hand of God means that Jesus is, he possesses the power and authority of God. And so instead of that being proof that he's not equal with God, it's actually proof that he is because the only way he possesses the power and authority of God is because he is God. And that's why the writer is saying that Jesus is greater than angels. No angel possesses the power and authority of God. Any power or authority that they operate in is only what has been delegated to them by God. It's his power and authority. And then the other reason given for why Jesus is greater than angels is the last line of verse 4. Because he has inherited a name more excellent than they. And what name is that? 
Verse 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus is greater than angels because no angel is referred to as God's son, just Jesus. And then it goes on to quote more Old Testament texts that we're not going to read all of them this morning, but they're all quoted to show that even back then, even in the Old Testament, the prophets were declaring the supremacy of Jesus over angels. Now, here's a question. Does God still operate in the world today through angels? Yes, he does. And verse 14 even gives us one of their purposes. It says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So God uses angels to serve us and and to make sure that God's plan for our life doesn't fail. To make sure that we are fulfilling our destiny in Christ even though we don't always see them. Now, I could easily take all this and turn it into a message on the role of angels in the world today and what all they do and don't do and how we've gotten so many things about them wrong, but I'm not going to do that because the primary focus of this text is Jesus, not angels. And plus, I mean, I know how easy it is for us to get so caught up in and interested in angels that we can very easily take our eyes completely off of Jesus And that's precisely what the writer of Hebrews is saying that we shouldn't do. It's like, why in the world would you want to focus on angels when Jesus is so much greater? And that's his whole point. So let's keep going here. Chapter 2 says, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty... How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Here he's talking about the gospel, saying that if what God said through angels was so important and needed to be heeded and paid attention to, then what God has said in Jesus is even more important and should be paid even more attention. Verse 5, for he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere. Now I'm going to stop right there because I just love that. How many of you can quote what some scriptures say but you have problems reciting the address, the actual book, chapter, and verse. Anybody? It's okay to say you do because I do too. And don't feel bad about that because apparently Paul or whoever wrote Hebrews had the same problem. I mean, look at him. He's like, I don't remember who, but somebody somewhere has, has said this. And, and then he quotes him. I love that God allowed that to be included there. Because people get hung up on uh, chapter and verse, which, by the way, weren't even included when the Bible was originally written. Those things were added much later. Um, but it was David, he's actually, who, who said this in Psalm chapter 8. And here's what he said. What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. What little while? Is he referring to here? He's talking about us. For a little while, he has made us lower than the angels. Well, 
I'm sure that some will assume that it's talking about the time that we are in now and that we won't be lower than them when Jesus returns or we go to heaven and turn into angels ourselves, right? No, that does not happen. Just so we're clear, we do not turn into angels. And that was such good news to me when I was younger because I felt really guilty that I wasn't very excited about going to heaven because the thought of turning into an angel sitting on a cloud and playing a harp for eternity did not sound very exciting to me. (laughs) So when I found out that wasn't the case at all, I felt a whole lot better about it. But the little while is talking about the time before Jesus came. Because apart from him, all of mankind was wicked, cut off from relationship with God. The Bible says that we were enemies of God and spiritually dead. An enemy of God would definitely rank lower than a servant of God, which is what angels are. But all of that changes for those who are in Christ. A son of God, a daughter of God does not rank lower than a servant of God. The children of the king always are at a higher status and a higher rank than the servants in the castle. Angels do not rule over us. They serve us by assisting in making sure that we are fulfilling our destiny in Christ. Let's read on. It says, you have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Still talking about man here. And it goes back to our original purpose back in Genesis 1 when God said, let us make man in our image According to our likeness and let him rule over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and over all living things that live upon the earth. There's something that I feel like I need to address here that about how this text really speaks to something that is going on in our culture today. It's this lie that seems to be gaining more traction even among Christians especially those of younger generations. It's important to understand that God designed everything to operate within a specific hierarchy. And his hierarchy goes Jesus, man, angels, animals, all of creation. That is God's design, and we have no right No authority to try to change or redefine that in any way. But there is this demonic agenda that is being pushed in the world today that wants to put animals and really all of nature, for that that matter, on the same level as man. You've got all these environmental groups and animal rights activists that are, are pushing this and it is a blatant rebellion against God's design. They've even come up with a new term now. You may have heard of it called speciesism. I mean, it's like you can't even breathe now without being labeled something, either a racist, a sexist, a feminist, and, and now a speciesist, which is assuming human superiority over animals. And so if you believe what the Bible says, that we have been appointed over the works of God's hands, then you, according to them, are a speciesist. Just Google animal rights versus human rights, and you will find article after article of these massive attempts to legally 
through the court systems, assigning human rights to animals. And, I mean, I get it. It can be tempting to buy into some of this stuff because they're so good at playing on people's emotions and portraying animals as having the same emotions and the same thought processes that, that humans do, but they do not. So please guard against that because it is a direct slap in the face to God. Now, the fact that God has assigned us to rule over creation does not mean that we have the right to abuse animals or completely trash the environment. No, if we understand our role that we have been given the mandate to manage God's creation for his glory, then we are going to be good stewards of it. Listen to me. Humans are not going to destroy the earth. They're not going to, and to even think that we can is very arrogant. Reason is this, God has a plan for this planet. God has a plan for this planet, and there is nothing we can do, no amount of drilling that we can do for oil, no amount of of, of recycling or not recycling we can do, nothing we we can do is going to thwart God's plan. Listen, this is not a political issue, so don't anybody come up to me and say you're throwing politics into a sermon. This is not a political issue. This is a kingdom issue. This is a biblical issue. And it just, I wish I could say more, but we don't have time. It just worries me how so many Christians are buying into this just demonic green agenda thing. It's dangerous, and it's just completely rebellious against God. We got to move on. Let's keep reading here. Look at the last part of verse 8. He says, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. The him again there is mankind and all things. He's referring to all of God's creation that have been subjected to us, meaning that we are over it. We are to manage it for God's glory. But then it says we don't see all things that have been subjected to us. Now, to be honest with you, I don't really understand what that means or when we will see all the things that have been subjected to us. My guess is that that's probably going to happen when Jesus returns and restores all things to himself. But since the author didn't explain this any further, then that says to me that trying to figure out exactly what that means is not what matters most. What does matter most is what he says in verse 9. But we do see... Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So at the beginning of chapter 1, the writer establishes the supremacy of Jesus, that there is nothing greater than him. And then he goes from that to saying here that for a little while Jesus became lower than angels. This is an incredible thing to think about, that the one who created angels, the one who is served by angels for a little while, willingly chose to lower himself beneath the angels. My mind cannot fathom a greater act of humility. But when was that? When was that little while that Jesus was made lower than the angels? 
It was when he was on the cross bearing the guilt of our sin. Because everything I talked about earlier that separated us from God and made us lower than the angels was placed on him. He became the orphan so that we could become sons and daughters. He became lower than the angels so that we could become higher. He swallowed death so that we could have real life. And I've talked often about how the purpose of everything God created, his whole purpose for creating all of this, was to bring him worship and glory, to to magnify him. Everything he created was for the purpose of being a reflection of his goodness and majesty. You and I, we were created to worship God, to bring him glory. I hear people saying all the time, I just wish I knew what my purpose in life was. That's it. Your purpose is to worship and to glorify God and all that you do. God did not create us because he was lonely and wanted some company. He did not create us for us. He created us for him and his glory. Now, to hear that, I think the tendency for some of us is for our minds to kind of go to a place where like, oh, doesn't that kind of make God seem like he's pretty arrogant? I mean, doesn't he tell us to be humble and not to make everything about us, but yet he made everything literally about him? I mean, doesn't that seem a little hypocritical, some would ask? And I have had people approach me with this and ask about this. And uh, there's really two answers that I have to that. The first one is, if it does mean that God is arrogant, then so be it. I mean, he is God, and he can be whatever he wants to be. I mean, what are we going to do about it? File a complaint? (laughs) Sue him? I mean, you could rebel against that, but that's never really worked out for anyone, ever. The second answer is God's not arrogant at all. And the reason... We can know that is because of verses like verse 9. If God was arrogant and conceited, there is no way he would have ever made himself lower than angels. No way. It is the greatest statement of the exact opposite of arrogance. The greatest statement of humility that there is. There is no way that he would have purposely left the perfection of heaven to come down to this broken sin infested world put on flesh to save a bunch of glory thieving rats who have been belittling and blaspheming his name for thousands of years and then to take our place and receive the punishment that we deserve for all that if you can look at that and tell me that God is arrogant then you are just completely blind And he did all that so that we could live the life that we were created for by worshiping him and and bringing him glory. Because he knows that when we do, we find the joy and complete satisfaction that our hearts have always craved. We were created to worship him because when we do, he is glorified and we are satisfied. Let's read on. Verse 10. He says, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified 
are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. So this Jesus, who is the power and authority of God, who humbly made himself lower than the angels by becoming a man and dying in our place, then rising from the dead and taking his rightful place at the right hand of the majesty on high, he is not ashamed to call us brothers, sisters. Another evidence that he's not arrogant. And the reason why he can call us brothers and sisters is because he became one of us. Okay, skip down to verse 17. We're going to finish out the chapter here. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He had to be made like us in all things. When God put on flesh and became a man, he became 100% man. Philippians 2.6 says this, that although he existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and becoming in the likeness of men. What exactly did Jesus empty himself of? Well, he emptied himself of everything that would have given him some sort of advantage that we don't have as humans. The only difference, the only thing that Jesus had that we didn't at that time was an intimate relationship with the Father. And the only way that Jesus was able to do all the supernatural things he did was because of that. It was his complete reliance and submission to the Father. And Jesus even said it was the Father who was doing those things through him. And then he went to the cross so that you and I could enjoy that same relationship. And so because he was limited in every way that we were, which is what he did. I mean, he he took on the same limitations as a human being that you and I have. And because he has, it means that he has experienced every hurt, every frustration, every temptation that you and I face. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted into trying to be tempted into believing that Something other than God will satisfy. Because Satan did that to him. Tried to for 40 days in the wilderness. He knows what it's like to have someone reject you. To have people turn on you. To betray you. To be against you. To stab you in the back. To say things and spread lies about you. Jesus knows what that's like. I believe this is what David was alluding to when he wrote the fifth verse of Psalm 23 that says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. The valley of the shadow of death is a description of the darkest and lowest place a human being can possibly be. Any of you ever been in a pretty dark place in life? 
Any of you ever felt pretty low? Some of you may feel like you're in the valley of the shadow of death right now. Take courage because so is Jesus. And the reason why we don't have to fear even when we're in a place like that because when we're there, Jesus says to us, hey, I've been here. I've been here before. So I know the way out. Follow me. Keep your eyes on me. And I'll lead you out of here. So to kind of wrap this up this morning, I know there's some verses that I skipped over there in that last section. Did that intentionally, and it is not because I don't think there's anything good in them. On the contrary, there is awesome stuff in those verses. Like verse 14 that says, Jesus took part in flesh and blood so that he might render powerless the one who has power over life and death, that is, the devil. Man, I'm skipping that today because it speaks directly to the message I'm going to be bringing on Easter. Uh, It's just... uh, I wish it was Easter already. I'm already excited about it. It speaks to um, an Old Testament story that we're all familiar familiar with. It has everything to do with the resurrection and this verse right here too. And so we're going to look at that then. But this morning, I know we've looked at a lot of stuff here, but my hope is that all these things that we have looked at and learned about Jesus may make your love for him grow just a little bit more. My prayer all week has been that by seeing these things in the word here in Hebrews 1 and 2, that, that the greatness of Jesus we would see just a little bit more clear because the more we see his greatness, the less becomes the greatness of everything else. The less becomes the greatness of everything that we tend to believe is so great. If there's anything you take from this message today, let it be this, to know that there is nothing in this world that can satisfy the cravings of your heart like Jesus can. No spouse, no lover, no circle of friends, no position or achievement, no reputation, no amount of money, no physical pleasure can give you the satisfaction, fulfillment, and joy that is only found in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I believe just about every one of us in here know that that's true. And we want to believe that it's true. Lord, some of us would confess that we have a hard time moving that from our head to our heart. We say that nothing but you can satisfy, but yet we look to so many other things to satisfy us. Lord, I pray that this morning a miraculous thing would occur where you move it from head to heart. Lord, I pray for those who have just been so consumed in in running after and chasing after and looking to something for their fulfillment and their joy, God, and it's just done nothing but leave them in pain. Lord, I pray this morning they would 
see the error of their ways. They would repent, turn to you. Lord, I pray for those this morning that for a long time been on the outside looking in. I can't say that they're a part of your people. Lord, I pray that your love, your grace, your mercy would draw them to Jesus. Give them the faith to believe. Bring them to salvation. Lord, I pray that you examine all of our hearts this morning. Lord, as David said, see if there be anything in me. Lord, just give that to you. Lay it at your feet. Pray that your truth, your glory would fill space that those things were taken up. Jesus, I believe that you're here by your spirit. I believe there's some things you're wanting to do. And so we're submitting ourselves to you and saying, do them. Just do them, Lord. It's in your name I pray. Amen.